Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Then a distrust arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And he said to him, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them. And said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Well, this morning we consider this portion of Luke chapter 9 as we come towards the end. We know last time we spoke of how the disciples did not grasp that although Jesus was king during his earthly ministry, he remained in what we call the estate of humiliation. It means that his glory was veiled. Yes, he was the ever, the eternal son of God. He did not lay aside his divinity. He could not do that. But he did lay aside his glory, and it was veiled, it was cloaked, and there was a reason for that. And they did not grasp that they, like Christ, were in this estate, in this situation of humility. Forget about honors, forget about privileges and, and places and so forth in the world. As the master was going to suffer rejection from this unbelieving world, so were they going to suffer rejection and be persecuted. Indeed, most of them be martyred. And we have to remember that this is an important principle that we've got to understand Christ. It is of paramount, it is of greatest importance that we understand Christ, his person and his work, or else we get everything else wrong. And it certainly goes with the attitude that we display to other people. If we do not understand who Christ is and what he came to do, we'll get it wrong. Now, the question is, though, so last time we were just establishing, no, Christ was in the estate of humiliation, so is his church, as long as we're in this world. But now there's another step to that. Why was Christ in that condition? And the answer is because he came to save. His mission was one of salvation rather than of condemnation and judgment. And so to the Pharisees' disgust, he would offer salvation to absolutely anyone who would listen to the gospel, even tax collectors and sinners. And once again, the disciples should have done that very simple mathematics to understand that if, okay, if Christ has come to save, 
then, then we, that is our situation also. We are those who are agents of salvation and act accordingly. But they didn't. And so James and John want to call down fire from heaven to consume this entire village of the Samaritans for their horrible sin of inhospitality. Now, it was a sin. There's no doubt about that. But what was Jesus' response? He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They still didn't understand what Jesus was doing in this world, and therefore they did not understand their own situation and their own attitude towards others. And we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that Jesus came to save lives, many lives, and none of them any better than those people in Samaria. This is where we have to keep the comings of Christ very clear and distinct. Jesus is going to judge someday, just not then. The first coming, we know that in the second coming, he's going to judge, he's going to condemn, yes, even to destroy, and you know what? We are going to rejoin with him. Whatever state Christ is in, his church is with him. And when he comes in his glory, there will be judgment, there will be condemnation, destruction, and we will join with him as judges of the whole earth. But not now. Not now. Now Jesus, as he came in his situation of humility, in order to save, so it is with his church. Now, again, we'll mention Jesus himself declaring woes upon certain cities. Woe to that city. But in the very warning that he gives to them, the point is that the day of salvation is now. He's warning them in order that they might turn. He's warning them in order that he might save. And that's what his church needs to do as well. Now, I would just say one more word of introduction before we get to the, the, the sermon, just to get our minds in the right place. Why would Jesus choose these particular sinners to judge and to destroy anyways? He's already encountered worse than that. He's already encountered, not from the Samaritans, from his own people, rejection. Worse than inhospitality. Some, people, some of those people were saying that he had a demon. Under the influence of Satan, all kinds of blasphemies were said against him. Glutton and wine, all the rest of those things. And he did not destroy them then. And I would say, among his own disciples, he probably had worse than that among them. He knew what Judas was soon going to do. He knew what Peter was soon going to do. The reality is, if they wanted to call down judgment, they might as well have just called it down on themselves. You need to keep that in mind. As we do this, because Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom we are chief, right? Well, we're going to focus on the words of verses 55 and 56. And the title of this sermon is Sharing the Spirit of Christ. Sharing the Spirit of Christ with three points. He did not come to destroy, secondly, but to save. And third, Disciples should share this spirit. He did not come to destroy, but to save. And disciples should share that same spirit. Well, our first point is that he did not come to destroy. It's the very simple words of verse 56. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives. He didn't come to do that. 
This is one of many clarification statements that we actually have in the Gospels, and we should pay attention to all of them. Jesus was so wonderful. Obviously, he was perfect in all of his ways, and he, he knew how to clarify. He knew how to make very clear statements. So let's, let's listen to some of those clarification statements. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Matthew 9.13, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Matthew 10.34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Matthew 20.28, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And perhaps most Importantly, most relevant for us, John twelve forty seven. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then you say, well, Jesus, you are the judge. You will come to, save the, to judge the world. But he said, this time, right now, I have not come to do that. Jesus once came to create. And one day he's going to come to judge. But right now he's come to save. That's what he's doing. And it's important to be clear on what Jesus came for. Now that's in great contrast, by the way, to another verse in John, which we may remember, John 10, 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what the thief does. The thief has come to destroy these poor sheep. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have more abundantly. That's what he's come, to give you life, to give you abundant life. He's not come to destroy men's lives. I am the good shepherd, and a good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. That's the heart, that's the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, as these disciples did not get that, as they themselves were wrong on their own mission and were willing to call down destruction on this village, don't forget, it could have been otherwise, right? It could have been otherwise. Jesus could have sent, uh, God could have sent Jesus as an emissary to destroy that town and the whole world along with it because he did that as well. He he once did destroy this world in the flood, all but those eight souls on the ark. And he once did send his emissaries, his messengers, his representatives to come and destroy a city. You know about it in Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19.12, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against him has grown great before the face of the Lord, and what? The Lord has sent us to destroy it. It could have been that way. He could have been sent to destroy, and it would have been just. There's no injustice in that, but it wasn't. Praise God, it wasn't. And again, I say, it will be otherwise one day. We have to get this straight. It will be different. Matthew eleven twenty. he began to rebuke the cities. This is Jesus, same Jesus. He began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom. It would have remained to this day. I say to you, 
It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. It will be different than that. But by his very warning, by his very uttering those words, rather than just doing it, he could have just done it. By his very uttering of the words of warning, it meant the day had not yet come for judgment. It was the day of salvation because he came on a mission from the Father to save his people. And praise God for that. And that's what our second point is. He didn't come to destroy, but to save. Read that, those two verses again. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They, they didn't know what manner of spirit they were of. They were of the, the spirit, they thought they were of the spirit of Elijah, perhaps. And to come and to destroy. And we'll speak a little bit more about that later, Lord willing. But you know, the thing is, Elijah executed the judgment of God which had been committed to him by the Spirit. But they rushed to vengeance, as Calvin says, not by the command of God, but by the movement of the flesh. Not echoing the Spirit that had been given, the Spirit of, of salvation and forbearance and mercy to Christ, but of wrath and of judgment. But Jesus Christ came to save. You know, Luke, I mentioned the, the verse in John. He said, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. He says in, later on in this book, Lord willing, we'll come to Luke 19.9. says, this is speaking to a tax collector. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. I mean, so far so far from destroying precipitously whole villages because their leaders had decided that maybe it looked like Jesus was moving on and wasn't worthwhile, they're extending hospitality. Besides, he was, they were Jews anyways, rather than Samaritans, and Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. So far from doing that, he was seeking out the very worst. He was going to the tax collectors, the ones who were traitors to the people the one who were sinners in the greatest extent, the one who you and I would say there's little hope of salvation. Now, we're, we, we have the whole New Testament, but sometimes we look at people and say, there is no way that they can be saved, and we're not going to bother. But that's not the spirit of Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He, he didn't come to sort of... Uh, to, to shepherd his time in the sense of, well, I'll just focus on the easy cases, the ones that are right in front of us. The example he gives us is what a shepherd is like. He's not shepherding his time, he's shepherding his flock. And, and what that means is you sometimes have to go and leave that flock and go to the straggler, the one you're not even sure is going to make it or not, and bring him back because he came to seek and to save the lost. He, he didn't come to call the righteous. The righteous are already here. But sinners... To repentance. That's the heart. That, that is the spirit of Christ. You know, again, what I, I said in the introduction, this is the faithful saying, 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And yes, we remember that we are chief. That's part of it. But, but we can't forget that that's what he came to do. And who are we to say that he can't do it? That he can't save sinners? He said that he can he said that's why he came, and we have to believe it. 
Now, how is he going to do that? Of course, it's by self-sacrifice. He can't save anyone or anything at no cost. Look, even if we wanted to save some historic building, it would come at a cost, wouldn't it? it we'd either have to buy it ourselves or we'd have to start some sort of campaign, hugely um, uh, costly in terms of time and effort to try to save the building. And if we wanted to save somebody else, somebody uh, physically, it would come at cost, at least of time, certainly of effort and probably of money as well. Salvation, saving anyone or anything, it all comes at a cost. And when we think of Joshua the high priest, we're reminded that that didn't come without cost either. You know, again, if, if, if the Lord is in front of Joshua the high priest, there he is in all of his filthy rags and he's clothed in his sin. And he could have said, Satan, you have made a convincing case. He is, in fact, a sinner and all that he represents. He's guilty. Get him out of here. And you know what? It would have cost him absolutely nothing to do that. It wouldn't have cost him a thing. But you know what he did? He took off those filthy rags. He said, take them off. You know what happened to them? He put those filthy rags on himself. Knowing that they would be like a lightning rod in an electoral storm. They would bring upon him the wrath of Almighty God because of those sins that he was now wearing. He did that at infinite cost to himself. Why? Because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Because he did not come to destroy, but to save. Well, if Jesus Christ did not come to destroy, but to save, thirdly, we should be clear that his disciples should share in that same spirit. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. These disciples had wrongly determined what manner of spirit they were, but that only means that there must be a correct answer. There actually was a correct spirit for them to imbibe, for them to share, for them to imitate. They had picked the wrong one. We mentioned Elijah. And as I said, he was doing as he was commanded by God in accordance with the mission that he had, not on his own initiative. Now, we do say they did ask. They did ask, Lord, do you want us to do that? So again, they were not rebuked sharply for that. What we're talking about is the inclination. What made them think? The first thought that came to mind was raining down fire and judgment. Because there was self-will. There was imperiousness mixed in. Again, they thought that the coming of the kingdom in all of its fullness was right then. They were just previously a few verses before that, jockeying for position in the cabinet that was going to be running the whole place. And so surely they figure some place that did not welcome the king would be destroyed right then and there. They did not understand what spirit they should be of. But rather the spirit they should have been of was a spirit of Christ or one who did not come to destroy but to save. Now in this I think we can think of it a couple different ways. One thing I think we should just say is they should do unto others as they had been dealt with, as they had been done with Christ himself. And the best illustration of that is the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18, right? So here they are talking about raining down fire and judgment on this this poor village of Samaria that made a bad decision. And what is the situation with themselves? Well, Jesus tells them about that in Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, that as payment be made. 
The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. The master of that servant was moved with compassion. The very same words we know that Jesus looked out at those sheep. He had compassion on them. They were sheep having no shepherd. He was moved with compassion, and he forgave him the debt. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Almost nothing in comparison with the debt he had just been forgiven. And he laid hands on him and he took him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant did the same thing. Fell down at his feet and begged him saying, Have patience with me and I will pay you all. But he would not and went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Do you see that? You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Here this one had already been shown such great compassion, such great forgiveness and salvation. And then he rains out fire and judgment upon his fellow servants. We know the mind of God about these things. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved. They came and told their master what had been done. And his master, after he had called him, said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Do you see the parallel? Just as I had pity and compassion upon you, so you should have compassion and pity upon those around you. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what you've been forgiven of? Is your sin so far away from your mind that you can't even think that you would be like those other wicked sinners that you encounter? Is it that you've become so perfect now that it's hard for you to imagine anyone having compassion on a sinner like that? We need to be of the Spirit of Christ. You know, James and John, they were playing the part of the wicked servant there. They were not sinless. They were not perfect disciples. If Jesus had given them what they deserved, they would have themselves have been the smoking hole in the ground long ago and not that village in Samaria. We need to be very careful about that, don't we? And that's as we move to application. I, well, we're, we're going to have to talk about that particular Issue, but I, I first want to say this, just to make sure our priorities are right. Let's let's start with this. Rejoice in the day of salvation. That's my first application. Rejoice in the day of salvation, because I've, and I mean we should certainly embrace Christ as Savior. First of all, of course, I'm I'm sometimes surprised that people misuse this day of salvation. It is it is a strange thing to me that when Jesus shows this forbearance, they sometimes take it for granted. Because fire has not yet been called down upon them, they think it never will be. And they ignore the gospel that is given to them. And they just carry on their merry way, thinking, and, and, you know, completely contrary to the situation that we have. It's not that judgment will never come. Judgment is coming. And indeed, this whole world will be destroyed. And all sinners with it cast into hell forever. But not now. You have an opportunity to repent. Jesus has is forbearing and long-suffering. And now is a day of salvation. But I mean beyond that, that we should certainly rejoice. We should believe in the gospel, but we should rejoice that we have. And we should marvel at the patience of God. 
I've sometimes pointed us to the words of Revelation 6.10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long? This is the martyrs in heaven. They're saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And it just came to me that, you know, Jesus could have said, uh, I'm a martyr too. And I, you know what? I'm getting kind of impatient as well. You know what? You're right, martyrs. I've had it with these people, and we're going to do that right now. Let's go rain down fire and judgment on this world. They deserve it. It will be just for us to do it. And we've waited long enough. He could have done that. Instead, he says to them, wait a little while longer. And to himself, he is long-suffering, you see. He's long-suffering. He tells the angels, not only the martyrs, you wait a little while longer. He tells the angels, created primarily for the purpose of bringing this world to judgment, to wait a little while longer, to remain at their posts Don't do it. We're going to wait a little while longer. And all that to me is a confirmation of our wonderful doctrine of God where it says in Westminster Confession 2.1, one one of the most basic things that we have in all of our theology, the doctrine of God. What is our God like? There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, proclaiming the very same thing that God did to Moses so long ago as he was in the cleft of the rock, proclaiming what was said to Elijah. He's long-suffering. He's long-suffering, and we should rejoice in that. Do we rejoice? We say, praise God. Praise God. He didn't destroy the world a hundred years ago before I was born. He hasn't destroyed it today. And there's yet a day of salvation. Praise God. And secondly, I say the obvious point that the sermon was mainly thrust towards that we should share in the spirit of Christ. Until the end of the world, an event which will not come secretly or quietly, our spirit must be the same as Christ in this present time. As as he was in the state of humility on this earth, so we must be in the state of humility. And as he came to save sinners, so that is our job, that is our situation. We are coming to save, not to destroy. We are putting off judgment, not discernment. It's a very different thing. We're not putting off discernment. We're putting off judgment. And he thought of pouring out judgment and destruction. And therefore, by the way, we're not like the Muslims. We're not now and never shall we be suicide bombers or jihadis. We are radical. You know, the exclusive call to discipleship that Christ gave in this very chapter seems to be that, isn't it? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But we are radical in our love to people. We even love our enemies. We are commanded to love our enemies. There there couldn't be a thought further away from the Christian's mind than to go blow himself up. Because we love our enemies and we want them to be saved. Our greatest desire is that they would be saved as we are. We are a life-giving religion, not a religion of death. And the fruit of that life-giving religion should be obvious to any unbiased observer of us. 
And I say that we are like the disciples earlier in the chapter. Luke 9, 6, so they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Do you see how they were perfectly echoing Christ, coming to save life? It's obvious. There they are, doing good to people. That's what we do. That's our job as Christians. We go and do good. Yes, primarily to bring them salvation, but also as, we, as it is in our power to do, as are doing good to our neighbor, absolutely. We love them and we do good to them in every way that we know how. And we're like Paul in Romans eleven fourteen. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh, meaning the Jews, and save some of them. That's his saying. Look, I, I, that's my heart. I want to save them. Or 1 Corinthians nine twenty two. So the weak I become as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men. Doesn't mean I've taught all things. Doesn't mean I've become a heretic. It means that I myself am willing to change, to be put out of my convenience, and to go to the ends of the world in order to save some, that I might by all means save some. You know, again, for the Muslim, what counts is how many they've destroyed. For us, it is by any means that we might save some. That is what the heart of Christ is, and that is what our heart is as well. We do not condemn, but we do warn. Again, that is sharing the mind of Christ. That is sharing the spirit of Christ that we do warn. You know, how many of the people, how how do the people of this world treat the ones that they dislike? Even school children, how do they treat them? They don't warn them, right? If there's some danger, if there's something that's going to get them, they just let them fall into it because they're glad about that. That's what they want to see happen. And when we preach against sin, we're not condemning people. That, that word, I, I say, is sometimes misused. But that word condemning, that's very specific in Scripture. It is meaning to render a final judgment, to actually condemn someone to hell, to say, you are beyond the pale, you are, or you are, are fully condemned in the sight of God. That is not what we do. We're not condemning them. We are warning them that if they do not repent, this is the fate that awaits them. And there's every difference in the world between those two things, every difference in the world. Imagine some sort of specialist hospital that dealt with cancer and is inhabited by extremely highly skilled surgeons, but unfortunately they're hateful and indifferent to people. And they can diagnose any cancer. They, they have perfect skills. They know exactly, not just that they've got cancer, but what kind, what stage it is, and all the rest of it. And they, they, would, they could always suggest a treatment that would work every time. And people with deadly cancers come in, but if the doctor's in a, a bad mood or they say something wrong, then they just they say, it's fine. Yeah, you, you don't have cancer at all. You are perfect. And on their way out, they look at it and, and they kind of gesture and they point to some giant tumor that they found in their pancreas and they laugh on their way out. Imagine that situation. You see how there's a difference? You warn people that you care about. You tell them the truth in love. Jesus came to save life, not to destroy it. And that is what the Christian church must do. The Christian church has got to be a place where we know how to give bad news as well as good. Because we are here. We have been sent just as Jesus himself to save life. Well, thirdly, my my third and final application is that we ought to learn to love with open eyes. Learn to love with open eyes. You know, in some sense, it should be easy for a church that preaches the whole counsel of God to love one another, but in another sense, it's hard. You know why? Because we have discernment. 
Because we have discernment. We're not like the liberals, completely lacking in discernment or judgment of any kind, whether theological or moral. They can embrace absolutely anything and anyone. It doesn't matter. They have no discernment whatsoever. They can't see anything wrong with people, or at least not the right way. They sometimes see things that are wrong that are not wrong, but they can't see any right thing that is truly wrong at all. They just, they're blind to those things. So they just embrace everything. But we're not like that. The longer we're exposed to the truth of God's word, the more that we're going to know the difference between right and wrong, between truth and falsehood. And our eyes have been opened when we look at others. And what do we see? They're sinners. They're sinners, even in, in church, the people around you. If God has granted you discernment, you see, they're, they're hypocrites. They're not as nice as I thought they were. They seem to be harboring All kinds of pride and other things like that. Yeah, your eyes have been opened. It's true. It's true. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Right? What are you going to do with it? Because some churches that have a lot of that theological discernment and whose eyes are open use it to be unloving and to be prideful. But that's not the spirit of Christ. Christ looked at his disciples and he saw everything about them. And he loved them nonetheless. Brothers and sisters, we must learn to love with open eyes. You know, again, I I say for our church, as some of us see faults and others here, what we need to do is remember the words, first of all, two things. First, we need to remember the words of Matthew 7, 3. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see, the thing is, sometimes in our wonderful discernment of other people, we forget to train that same wonderful tool back on ourselves. And it only works when as much as God is granting you greater discernment and clarity in the faults of others that you also use that on yourself. Because otherwise those two things get out of whack And all you do is you grow in your pride and your self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and you begin to despise others just like the Pharisees. But then once you've dealt with that hypocrisy, once you are conscious of your own sin and you deal with, maybe you have that very same sin which is so visible to the other ones, that's a very often a trick we do on ourselves, isn't it? This thing that we're kind of guilty, kind of conscious about, boy, we pour all of our thinking into other people that we know who have it maybe even worse than we do. Now we first deal with that sin and then fresh from that, from that experience in a spirit of humility and of love, fresh from the experience of having been dealt with ourselves with it, in that kind of spirit, we speak the truth in love. We don't give up on them. We don't give them over to those things. We love with open eyes, you see? The same thing goes with our homes. They've got to be places of love. They've got to be places of love. Not where anything goes, but where we love very flawed people and we seek to do all that we can to save them. We see their faults. We tell them about their faults. But we love them through these things knowing that we ourselves are probably the reason why they have those faults. Right? It's true. We have got to find a way to do that. Because the church that at the moment is known for its love and 10 years could be a place known for its hypocrisy. And that the more that we grow in our discernment, the more that we have our standards, the more that we form ourselves in many ways outwardly, 
that is not accompanied by an ongoing spirit of humility and of the, the spirit of Christ who did not come to destroy but to save. And that's where we'll be. And we need to, we need to pray. Those, some of us have such a, an abiding sense of our sin, I, uh, it, it damages your assurance of faith. And so I don't mean that, your assurance of salvation. I mean, but others of us seem to have forgotten that we're sinners sometimes. And in that spirit, we deal with others, and we, we don't need to do that. We need to have a consciousness of the depth of our depravity and the reality that there but for the grace of God go I. And in that way, we seek and we save the lost, and we love those whom God has put into our midst. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we must confess that we have had too much sometimes of the spirit of James and John rather than the spirit of Christ. And Lord, we know that there is rightly to be discernment. There is a a right sense of right and wrong and of standards and all the rest of it. But Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would apply all of our high standards to ourselves first of all, and that there would not be hypocrisy among us. And Lord, when we see it among others, that we would deal with one another in great compassion and in humility. And Lord, we're thankful that you are long-suffering and that this remains a day of salvation. And that Christ came at great cost to seek and to save the lost. He came to save life, not to destroy. Lord, how we pray that this spirit would be pervasive among us and that, Lord, this would truly be a place of love, not where we give up on people, not where we give people over to things, not where we condemn them willy-nilly, but rather, Lord, we lovingly, lovingly bring people to the Savior and lovingly even rebuke them lovingly encourage them. And Lord, that the mind and the state and the situation of Christ would be that which we echo. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.